0: Thanks again, Van. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha and happy Easter. Welcome back to most of you, but if you're visiting for the first time today, it's maybe family or just visiting for the first time, whatever got you here. Uh, we're glad you guys are here, as Spence said earlier, uh, to um, whatever the case is for you. Just learn more about Christ or kind of kick the tires of the faith, as my old pastor used to say, uh, or um, worship with us and, and be reminded of the graces you've, you've already been been given. So, um, today we're going to be taking a break from our Judges series, if you've been here uh, for the past few months, we're in a series in the book of Judges and the Old Testament that we'll break from to look at Luke 24, 1-12 today, so turn there in your Bibles if you want to, or on your phone apps, but I will have all this on screen here today in uh, three little sections, so we're going to uh, split it up today just for kind of the ease of reading through it and commenting on it, I'll get to that in just a second. But today we're going to look especially at this question that the angels ask the women who were the first ones at the tomb. Uh, if, you, if you know the story or if you don't, uh, they're the first ones there. Um, a couple of Marys and uh, Joanna and some other women, unnamed women, but a lot of Marys in the first church in the Testament. So anyway, we'll, we'll um, learn from them. Uh, but this question of uh, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a question I think for them but also for us. We'll get back to that. But really there's a lot of things we'll look at uh, kind of right through here. The passage top to bottom, which we usually do on a weekly basis, but it'll feel that especially today, a little more of a devotional level. Um, but uh, being Easter, I uh, just don't want to presume you guys have maybe even read the Bible before or it's been a while or this whole resurrection thing is new, uh, but even just by a way of reminder, um, I want to start by saying that the Bible, or to remind you, the Bible cares deeply about showing us how exactly people react, better or worse, to the resurrection. Not just that it happened that carries deeply to show that people were there after the fact, seeing it, witnessing it, and called like to believe in it. It's a big deal. It's not a passing thing. It Actually, a lot of the, the gospel accounts are for in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A couple of these guys were disciples of Jesus, or they're close associates with the disciples, so eyewitnesses to all of these things, writing these things down and so forth, breathed out by the Spirit, so inspired still by, by God. But they're actual men uh, who, who witness these things. Uh, but, but they're writing these things down, not just as history, but theological history, we say a lot here. So in other words, these things happened, but they, they mean something. And narratively, we see that then when people are interacting with these events, that the resurrection has bearing on our lives. And I mean bearing not as like a weight, it's a, it's a light thing. It's a good kind of bearing, it's just that it means something for us. There's a plethora of instances elsewhere in this book that we could look at, that we'll reference some today, but that say in a more straightforward, teaching like manner, over and over again, the resurrection matters for us, or things like he was raised for us. Not just that it happened, but he was raised for us. But also significant is how these gospel narratives that we're going to look at one, one today in Luke 24 portray the event. Again, not just as an event, but as an event that people witnessed, were affected by, and called to believe in. And so today, we're going to look at a part of Luke's account, Luke 24, 1-12, to just the initial part. It goes on, the, this is the last chapter of Luke, if, you, if um, you haven't read it before. It goes on to talk about these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. This is actually just this first instance where these women, and then Peter, runs to the tomb as well, see the tomb empty, and kind of uh, interact with angels, and tons of great theology, actually, here. That's subtle. It's easy to miss. Uh, it's, it's subtle. But... As we read it, you'll notice it's actually quite simple in a lot of ways. And that's one of the many things I like about the Bible, is the most important parts are the easiest to understand. The most important parts of the Bible, and just kind of the Christian faith at large, theologically, uh, is the easiest to understand. And then, those more clear parts help us understand the more difficult parts. Because the more difficult parts are veiled expressions of the more clear parts. And so that's another sermon today that just kind of went, woo right over your head. But that's, a, that's a, hopefully an encouraging thing to, to remember or know for the first time, if that's something that's brand new, is that, that God is, has masterfully woven his, this book together. It's his story in a way that it's very complicated and difficult to understand, but also very easy at the same time. And the most important parts are the actually the easiest, more straightforward parts. And so to put it slightly differently with the resurrection in mind, the resurrection really is the question. Did Jesus really rise bodily from the dead? Did that happen? If he did, it changes literally everything. Everything he said all of a sudden matters, including his own prediction of his death and resurrection, validated, but then his death matters as well. It did something. It wasn't just like you know, another event or just this lunatic who was saying crazy things from the cross, dying and then staying dead but his death then actually did what he said it was gonna do, atone for our sins. He was an actual substitute, his blood cleansed. It was something that was spilt in our place and for us, not just spilt, but, but for us as well. His miracles start to matter, and then again, like I was saying, the harder parts of the Bible are all of a sudden weightier and more worth our time exploring the depths of to see how Christ might be hidden there. And it also matters to us, so more existentially, to people like us who die, to people who have mourned, to people who've been to funerals and haven't seen tomb doors fly open like they're going to today, and who are still, in a way, mourning and waiting for final final deliverance, and who are in any way hopeless. These passages are for us, not just historical accounts of something that happened that are distant and way over there, but something that happened for people like us who instantly interact with these things in, in the narratives. And so, as we read, I want to encourage you guys to have all of that and more in mind. You know, allow passages like this to, maybe in some of your cases, to correct your preconceived notions or some of your misunderstandings about maybe who God is or who Jesus is or who you are before God or what sin is or how important the resurrection is. Uh, allow, that, allow God to speak to you, you know, through a passage like this. What the essence of the faith is, the center, the bullseye. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And I'll talk about a couple, apologetical, that, that just means, it's from a Greek word, apologeto, which means to defend, like defense arguments for the, the legitimacy of the faith. A couple of big ones in Luke 24 that I don't want to miss an opportunity to at least speak to a little bit. But, but the bigger thing is just allowing God to speak to you through this so that the resurrection is, like we've been saying, a gift. You know, like God is saying, this happened, but it happened for you. It's, it's like, I, I became a human being to die, to die for you so that you might share in my, in my resurrection. I died for you and I rose for, like the Bible says, your justification or your cleansing or your validation in a sense before God that you might be made right before him. So we'll talk more about that, but it's my encouragement as we start to read these things from Luke 24, 1 to 12. Let's start this morning by just reading verses 1 to 3, this initial um, account of what the woman saw. So verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So there it is, in, in three verses, there's no body. And so it goes on, we'll, we'll get to that, but let's just start with a couple of things here, I think, that, that even just the way the whole thing is set up, it's beautiful, how linguistically, even the Bible is, is, is set up like this. So, first, let's just look at the first word. But, but, the, the Greek word is de, which has a little bit of a semantic range to it. Here, uh, it clearly means but. It's a conjunction of contrast. So, which then, of course, links contrastingly with what precedes it, which was Jesus' gruesome death on a cross among criminals and his burial. So, basically, then, in chapter 23, uh, says in a, in a paragraph, they laid him in a tomb. And, and it was closed up and sealed and guarded. And uh, and at best, people were on the Sabbath, they were bringing spices and, and all of that to kind of scent the tomb and care for the body. But, but he was laid in the tomb and it closed up. So chapter 24 then begins not with an and, in other words, but with a but. But not an and as if the burial was the climax. And chapter 24 was just some kind of like resolving narrative to the story. But a but, which tells us, even in a word, that this death and burial, Jesus's, isn't the end. As if the bad guy in this story, death, gets the last word. And so, the spirit of this, there's many ways to word this, but the spirit of this is is saying something like, death seemed to have won, but then it didn't. Or, death brought into question whether or not Jesus was God's eternal king, but then he rose. Or, All seemed lost, but then hope. Or for us too, kind of from our side of things as well, as we talk about ourselves as kind of sharers in in the resurrection, and this being a gift of God for us, saying things like, the worst of things can happen. The worst of sins can be committed. The worst of deaths experienced. But then the women went to the tomb, and the door was open, and there was no body. It's like one of the greatest of contrasts of the whole biblical storyline. You can almost put like the whole of the Bible before this but. Like the whole thing. Death came into the world, and if you've been here for a Judges series, you've seen this, how like in such a downward spiral manner, people are, you know, imperfect is just like terrible word because it's way worse than that. They're just dead in, we're dead in our sins, and things get worse and worse and worse and worse throughout the biblical storyline in the Old Testament. And then here's the but. Like, but the tomb was empty. Or think of your whole life before this buts. Like, I live my life up to, up to the point that, that I converted or something, and, and I came to the tomb and saw it empty, and God moved in my heart to believe these things like he is the women here and, and Peter afterwards, but the, so the, the tomb was, was empty. So I think the implication then is for us it is even before really getting anything here, it's like the empty tomb is God's final word here. I'm I'm saying within the immediate context of what's being said, but the whole of the Bible. There's like two parts in a sense. The first part and then everything after the but in, in Luke 24. Like this empty tomb is God's final word, so it is in your life if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, it's not your sin. This is the climax of the biblical story. Not your mistakes, your addictions, your fears, or again, your, your sins, or the Bible says transgressions, or, or just mistakes, or all of our, the cosmic rebellion and treason we've committed against the king of the universe. That's not the final word, but if this doesn't happen, it is. Death is the final word, you know, it's like death is the, the worst thing that we can experience, you know, whether we're on the kind of the passive side, just, you know, receiving that on behalf of someone else, mourning or also also experiencing ourselves, whatever the case, that is sort of the final word. I mean, literally, right, for our stories. But because of the empty tomb and really what got Jesus there are our sins, wearing them around his neck like a heavy yoke. Uh, because he's destroying those things, it's not the final word anymore. So even in a word, guys, it, it, be encouraged. Sinners in the room, if you're a sinner. Be encouraged that it's not the final, your sin is not the final word, but there's something on the other side of that conjunction, that but, that is good news for us. So secondarily, to kind of flush out uh, the rest of this full sentence here is, uh, or part of it anyway, on the first day of the week, it's actually a big deal this is mentioned. This is Sunday, to, to be clear, and and one thing to note on a like a, symbolic sort of, but a a biblical theological level. And I'll just give the really short kind of Cliff Notes version of this today just for time's sake because it's for sure a whole sermon. But uh, is that if this is the first day of the week that Jesus is walking out of the tomb here, it implies what about Saturday? Saturday the day before was the seventh day of the week, the day that he was resting in the tomb on a Sabbath day, which the Sabbath was a, a weekly day of rest on the Jewish calendar. And so maybe, you know, you hear that and you're already kind of picking up on this, but what this is saying subtly but intentionally is that Jesus really is a harbinger of a new creation. He's recreating the world, God through him, again. And so here again is what I mean by this. This is, again, this is the quick Cliff Notes version of this, but this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible is a tale of two creations. Uh, It talks uh, painstakingly about this all throughout the Bible. There's one The prophets talk about looking ahead to a second, better one. And then Jesus comes to to kind of instill that or instigate that fully into into history. So the relationship is basically basically this. Like God in the beginning, in Genesis, if you know this story, worked for six days, created everything in the cosmos, including human beings, said it's finished, in Genesis 2-2, And then rested on the seventh day, which was a Sabbath day. So does again, in a related sense, Jesus' work again from John 5, 17, or work afresh in his ministry to save and recreate the world, especially through his death. Say it is finished in this kind of declarative, new creational kind of way. It is finished like God did in the beginning. Jesus said it's finished again, meaning I'm recreating from the cross and then rest in the tomb. On the seventh day, which, again, was a Sabbath day, a holy day, the day that Jesus was resting in the tomb, and others were resting in observance of the commandment. So implications for this, are a lot to say about it, but there's a theological implication and kind of a personal one. So first, theologically, what is this saying? It's saying that the first Easter morning, the first day of the week, is the first day of the new creation. The first day of the week when Jesus walks out of that tomb is the first day of the brand new creation that God's been working towards, typifying, prophesying about, imaging, foreshadowing that Jesus is embodying, working hard to accomplish, especially when he's bleeding and sweating and dying on that cross for our sins, working hard to recreate and cleanse and wash and all of that. Now he's walking out of that tomb. It's the first, the first day of the week. It's, it's the first day of the, of the new creation. Or like the apostles call it, the last days. 2,000 years ago, the New Testament authors called their time the last days. We're not waiting for the end, end times like the church talks about a lot today, as though if it's still ahead of us. We've been in the end times. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years because we're in this new creation time that the Bible was building towards and God is working towards ever since sin came into the world. This actually then ends up being a really powerful argument for the resurrection. Because if God is recreating then through Jesus, so stick with this theme, if he's recreating through Jesus, it would make sense, and you can even say he has to do this, but it would make sense that he would be undoing the things that tarnished creation in the first place. So sin, and he did that when he died, and death, he did that when he was raised. And so the secondary implication for us kind of building off that is recreations just happening. When God recreates, he does so on a very comprehensive level. It's not a metaphor. It's a reality. When God recreates, he does so on a very comprehensive level. He atones for sins and he resurrects. He re- actually raises the dead himself first. And then all those in the wake of that first resurrection who believe in the gospel. In other words, as I, as I say here as, as well, he doesn't kind of pull from what the women are doing, or seeking to do. He doesn't scent tombs with spices. In other words, make dead things smell better. That's not the way God works. It's not what he's interested in doing. It's not at all what happens in the story. God interrupts that attempt of the women to just kind of make a, a dead guy smell better for a little while. He resurrects. So, nor is God interested then, relatedly, in cleaning our old selves up. That's kind of the idea of scenting the tomb, is cleaning our old selves up versus a greater, more holistic idea of actually raising us from the dead and giving us a new heart, the Bible says, and a new mind and ultimately new bodies when he comes back to glorify us. Like, Christ walked out of that tomb his actual body. We expect that uh, as that that well. So, a lot more hope, in other words. And there's no then version of Christianity where Jesus is dead, but we can still have new and improved lives. That's one of the implications here. There's no version of Christianity where Jesus is still dead, but we can still have some new and kind of improved lives by obeying some of his teachings. There's no version of that. Zilch. Impossible. Bible never even goes there or toes the line of it. Either Jesus is alive and us in him, or he's dead and we're dead. And all of our good works mean nothing. Because if we needed a death and resurrection, then moral teaching must not have been enough, nor the point at all. Let's see how this is fleshed out in the next section. We'll read it first. 24, 4 to 7, so just follow along. While they, the women, were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That's a euphemism for angels, so two angels. Verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, that also is a reference to Christ, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and must on the third day rise. All right, so I want to focus on this. It's a great little interaction between the women. There's at least five of them, we'll see their names here in the last section, but at least five women, potentially even several more, who are here hearing this, interacting with these two men, uh, angelic beings, and, and they talk, and the angels speak first, uh, and, and they, ask, they ask that question, why do you look for the living among the dead? So aside from just being a really cool thing to say, you know, I, I've always thought about this passage or at least pictured, whether it's right or not, that the angel had to be smiling, right, when he's saying this. It's just like such a cool thing to say. It's kind of like dripping with. It's almost a little bit snarky, kind of like, you know, what are you guys, why are you guys looking for, you know, uh, dead Jesus here, he's alive, what's, the, what's, what's up? Get it together, or whatever. But uh, but anyway, they, they really preach the gospel for the first time. These angelic beings get to do that. Angels are messengers of God, um, in the Bible, some are named, most are not. But, um, but here have these two unnamed angels who are pronouncing, he's alive. And there's a call for faith, and we'll, we'll get to that. But, so on the one side, a really cool thing to say. But on the other side, I think this is a question for all of humanity to consider. Why do you look for the living uh, among the dead? or why, why are you presupposing death when he's alive, basically, to kind of flip that question around. It's a strange question, right, on one level. They didn't have to say it. Why don't they just announce that he's alive? Why even ask this kind of snarky question? It's almost kind of unanswerable, you know? But I think they do that. And remember, God's intentional with how he wove the scriptures together. It's all there for a reason. I think the question matters. I think the question probes at us a little bit and exposes a little bit of our heart in terms of what we too think about Jesus, dead or alive, or, you know, teacher or savior, those kind of things, which we'll see here. Um, but also just poses this question for us to ask as Christians, um, are we like the women or are we are we something more? Because here's the reality. The women were looking for a dead Jesus. The women were looking for a dead Jesus with spices and flowers in hand and sadness of face. And so the secondary reality is that happens every day around the world as well, even in the church, and potentially even in this very room right now with some of you. In other words, people attempting to fashion Christianity into a Jesus centered, which is good, but resurrectionless religion. So, people attempting to fashion Christianity into a Jesus centered, but resurrectionless religion. And you might say, well, no true Christian believes that, do they? And, and in one sense, you're right. No true Christian disbelieves the, the historicity. And the theological weightiness of the resurrection, it's required to be saved. But people might still be tempted to, and people might be believing that and think they're Christians, but they're not. Uh, but, so, but here's the thing. This is a conversion experience for these women. It's important for us to look at. But it's important for us to understand, what are they converting from to? They're, they're not converting from Jesus doesn't exist to Jesus exists nor are they converting from there's no helpful principles in Christianity to, well, I guess now there's some helpful principles for living with the faith. But rather, they're converting from Jesus is dead to Jesus is alive. And that's huge. And and I hinted at this earlier, but as Christians, we don't follow the example of the women here. It's not saying that. It's implying, actually, the opposite. But within kind of the way it's written, the fabric of the way it's written, there's no moral example to follow with the spices, right? As Christians, we don't follow the example of the women in pilgrimage to Jerusalem to pay respects and spice the tomb of a really cool dead guy. No one does that because he's alive. There's, there's no tomb left anyway. It's been, you know, there, there's no body in there, so it doesn't happen. But the fact that, that, that Christians don't have this impulse to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, find the tomb, throw down flowers and spices, and pay respects to a dead guy, is evidence that, it, that it's actually, he's not dead anymore, he's alive, first of all. But it's also not something, uh, clearly from what the women end up doing uh, to, to do ourselves. He's alive. He's alive. So the theological principle there is, Christianity is not about commemorating Jesus' life, as much as it is about trusting in his death and resurrection meaning his teachings earlier in the gospel accounts serve the purpose of pointing to his death and resurrection rather than the other way around so in 1 Corinthians 15 then uh, for example you know the apostle paul writes to encourage this first century church and in this church there are people that were stopping believing in the resurrection They were were Christians that were slipping. They weren't believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so this does happen to Christians. This does happen in real churches. It clearly did in the first century, and it will today as well. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is basically saying if Jesus didn't rise, I'm not quoting this part here, but if Jesus didn't rise, we are to be most pitied above all men, above all people as Christians, because the whole thing's a sham. And so here he uses different language, but he says, and if Christ has not been raised, as some of you are saying, he's saying in, in this 1 Corinthians, uh, in this church in Corinth, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's, it'd be better if you didn't have any faith at all, basically he's saying. There's no point to it. And again, later on in, in verse 17, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So this is really important to see, very important to get. Christians, Christian or not here today. So if you're not, you're understanding the crux of what the faith is and how important the fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb is. And if you're a Christian, this is kind of by way of reminder, uh, hopefully joyful, liberating reminder. But what Paul's saying here is important because of what he's not saying. Notice he didn't say, well, maybe Jesus didn't rise, but at least we can still love each other like he taught us to. Right? Isn't that enough? Just kind of doing what he taught us to do? Isn't that the center of Christianity as a whole? Just trying to get along with people that are very different from you? What this is saying is absolutely not. That's not the point. Never has been. Otherwise, why was a resurrection needed? His love for us in overcoming our sin and death is the center. Otherwise, death wins and death's an enemy. So goes the argument here in this, in this chapter. Even in this chapter, we see strong language used from the angels when they speak to the women. They say, remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee with you, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and must on the third day rise. It wasn't an option. You know, Jesus predicted it anyway, so it wasn't an accident um, that, you know, he rose. Like, there's that story where Jesus is walking in the crowds, and this woman touches his robe. You guys remember that? And, and uh, Jesus says, who touched me? I felt the power went out from me. <laughs> this is kind of this weird moment of, he doesn't really talk that way all the time. So, I just felt this power just kind of slipped off my robe. Who was that? And, and the disciples are like, dude, people are bumping into you, like, every millisecond here, you're, you're in a crowd. And it's just this cool thing. Sorry, sidebar. But point is, it's not like Jesus' like, a little bit of power slipped out unintentionally and like spilled on the floor of the tomb and whoa, he rose up. He's predicting this. He's the only guy who ever has. Because there are other resurrections in the Bible, this is the only one that's predicted by someone and then he actually follows through on his words. It means more authority. Means he's actually God. So it's, it's much more heightened. It's the resurrection that all other re- resurrections come from. In other words, whether beforehand they pointed to this or after the fact, they flow from this like a river. But in any case, note the must. He must die. He must be raised. The resurrection is the crux. So that it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And that's huge. Because if, it's a, if, if a resurrection and in, in a death, really, of Jesus is needed, but a resurrection is the crux, then who can accomplish that on their own? Who can earn that? Right? Who can climb the ladder of that? When's the last time you were able to give yourself a brand new heart that was perfect, as God is looking ahead to in the Old Testament, talking about that day that's coming, that is now that is now here? If it's about a resurrection, it has to completely be about God's power. When's the last time you saw someone raise themselves from the dead? Right? If it's about these these two things, the two sides of the same coin, the death and resurrection of Christ, then it has to be grace. It can't be about can't be about us. But if we wrongly say that it, the center of the faith is about Jesus' love, or just, just about following the example of Christ and by loving others, than it is by works. You know, and so a couple of questions then to consider. Uh, and I'm saying this to blanket statement here for all of you guys, wherever you're at spiritually, Christian or not. I kind of gear this towards Christians by saying functionally here, but again, just wherever you're at, hear this. How do we, in light of what the angels are saying to the women, I think it's a question for all of humanity to, to allow it to confront us when we read Luke 24. It's not just for the women. It's for us. Why do you look for the living among the dead? So how do we functionally look for a dead Jesus, and as it says here, and thereby scent his tomb and commemorate some of his moral teachings but don't live squarely in the limelight of the empty tomb? how do we do that? Take it in. You you and I do it way more than we realize. You know, so look at your life. Think about your life. How do you functionally, so I say functionally because you might not actually believe that, and you you don't if you're a Christian, but how do you functionally sort of resort uh, to that? And, you know, one example might just be overcoming some kind of uh, old life, old creation thing, like some addiction to a certain sin, like um, perpetual deceitfulness, or Making yourself look better through lying or an addiction to pornography or some other sexual sin or arrogance or something like that. And um, the, the difference here is like so oil and water. It's so apples to oranges. But if we're just going to scent the tomb of Jesus, if that's like the way we understand Christianity, the way that would look is when we look back and commemorate his life. Look at how perfect he was. Look at how humble he was. Look at how he never committed sexual sin. Look at how he was extremely humble. And we commemorate that, lay flowers at the foot of that, and try really hard to live that way. That's moralistic Christianity. That's Jesus is still dead, but we can learn something about his life type Christianity. The other side is standing squarely in the liberating limelight of the empty tomb, believing he walked out and believing he lives inside us by faith. And the power of the resurrection is at work in the believer's heart, as the New Testament teaches. That's very different. So that's not to say that we stop fighting and we don't have any downfalls or um, defeats in the Christian life. We try really hard to abstain from and kill sin, as the scriptures teach. But it does say there's this huge new, new creational element of just believing that the tomb is empty and that matters. That there's power in that. So a huge element of just speaking against sin and walking away, saying, my old self would have done that, but I'm actually a brand new being now in Christ. I walked out of that tomb with Jesus, and by faith, I'm sharing in his resurrection. Or just believing that when he walked out of that tomb, he defeated your sins as well, because your sins were keeping him in there. And when he walked out, he was stronger than them. So we have to apply faith to these ideas, actually believing. So the question here is, do we believe that's true? And usually, when we're under the thumb of sin, we just don't. We're, whether we realize it or not, scenting the tomb of a really cool dead guy, but not actually living liberatingly, if that's a word, uh, in light of the, the empty tomb that it's actually empty and that Christ himself reigns in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So ask yourself that question and apply it to the heart by faith. And relatedly, I'll I'll just go through this one a little bit quicker. It's kind of related, but is your Christian religion dependent on the resurrection, or on Jesus' resurrection? So, in other words, if what you understand the bullseye of the faith to be, whatever that is, so think, you know, what does my life look like on a regular basis, or what should Christians kind of be doing with their time, or if someone just asked you that, what's the essence of the Christian faith? If it's not The death and resurrection or something dependent on the resurrection then i think what this is saying is lovingly it's trying to correct that false version of christianity that we for one reason or another believe in if if christianity can kind of go on just by following some of jesus's commandments you know if it's just about love he didn't have to die for love just you know just for love people better did he have to die for that did he have to rise again for that and the answer is no. So 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 15 says that the resurrection is the crux, not again saying that, hey, we can still kind of keep this one uh, teaching and allow Christianity to sort of continue on, a death submitting, kind of pale, victoryless, uh, you know, shady version of itself. It's saying the whole thing is, is thrown out. So, so ask yourself that question, come back to that reality, kind of the, the good side of this, or help someone in this. This is a very common thing. By God's grace is not a big thing in our church because we just don't believe that, but um, it, but it can be in individual lives. We all will revert. You will know someone if you don't already, uh, and chances are, if you're honest with yourself, uh, you wrestle with these things even now. The, the tomb is empty, and that means something, guys. It's not just a cute story on a flannel graph board that you saw once, you know. Whatever, a long time ago. It's <laughs> gonna say, I was trying to like, how old are you guys? Yeah, I don't know. how old am I? Anyway, the math it works for everybody there. But <clears throat> point is. It's a reality to bask in, uh, not a, a tomb to scent uh, and commemorate with a few good things Jesus did. Uh, reality is the world goes there all the time, and so will we, because we just want to be saviors of ourselves. We want to have something to do with our salvation. We want to think that we're good enough. Uh, it is the default mode of, of the human heart that we need to repent of all the time. So, All right, so let's see how this kind of uh, continues and wraps up here in verses 8 to 12, the last section. Goes like this, and they, the women, remembered his words. Remember Jesus' words as the angels were, remember, talking about that. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and all the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These are Jesus' disciples, later called apostles, which means sent ones. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay, so a couple of things right off the bat. Um, I mentioned this before. Since we're here, these are two big things, Luke 24. Uh, as we talk about apologetical or kind of defense arguments for the legitimacy and the historicity of the resurrection, that it really happened, that the the gospel accounts are telling a true account of it, not a fable. Uh, These are a couple of big ones sort of woven in the fabric of the way the Bible is written itself that, you know, you'll read, if you pick up a book like on um, how can we trust the resurrection or something like that, or in a systematic theology book on the resurrection, there's a huge list you'll see, but these are are two big ones. So let's look at them first. The first uh, has to do with women were the first to the empty tomb. So... The fact that all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record that several women were the first to see the tomb empty, talk with angels, and in John's gospel actually see Jesus himself in the flesh post-resurrection, actually helps to authenticate the whole story itself because women's testimony in the first century Jewish context was not even admitted in court. So, If you're a group of Jewish Jesus followers trying to make this whole thing up, writing a fable, trying to make an airtight case for a new man-made religion, you would never, ever, ever put this detail in because it would instantly falsify it. Instantly. So what this is saying to us, kind of without saying it, but it's saying it, is that Luke must just be recording what actually took place. It must have actually happened this way, otherwise you would, you would never write it this way. And so that's one piece here with uh, the women. And there are other things here going on too, like just Jesus caring deeply for women and all this great stuff too. But, um, but apologetically, it's just huge that it's, that it's written this way. Second, uh, the linen cloths in a pile, which is not an, an incidental detail uh, in, in Peter's case especially. So as we see it in this section, and, and certainly the women w- would have seen this as well, uh, probably, so you can infer that. But it says with Peter, he runs to the tomb and, based on the the women's uh, story, runs to the tomb to see for himself. Peter looks in, stoops down low, and all he sees is linen cloths piled up uh, in, in the empty tomb. Now, apologetically, this is important because to see linen cloths piled up like that in the empty tomb would have immediately discounted any theory about it being grave robbers who raided the tomb. Because grave robbers want what in a tomb? Treasure, right? Something expensive, like the linen cloths. Would have been pretty expensive. Pretty good thing to take there. So the idea of a grave robber unwrapping a corpse, leaving, a, leaving behind the expensive things, and ta- taking a rotting corpse home with you uh, doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, grave robbers work. So, Plus, they wouldn't have been able to get past the Roman guard anyway, and the seal on the door. Uh, there's a, that's another sermon, but you know there's a whole line of things. It's, it's moot because this wouldn't happen anyway, but if someone's saying, hey, it was grave robbers, doesn't follow because they left all the things that robbers take and they took things that robbers never take. So it doesn't work. Instead, again, Peter sees a pile of linen cloths. It's what it would have looked like if someone just woke up and took the grave clothes off and walked away. It's exactly what it would have looked like. And, you know, and Peter didn't realize this at the time. Uh, he's not connecting these dots. It's saying he's marveling, probably not fully believing yet, but the gears are spinning, you know, when he sees that, well, can't be grave robbers. Wait a minute, what did he say again? Kind of, it's almost like it's dripping with, oh, you can almost get in his mind and, you know, see what's happening here. But it just says he's marveling. But Peter, what he's really seeing and what he, I think as readers what we're supposed to see here, and maybe what Peter thought later as he reflected more on these things in and, and Luke, as he's writing this, is really what he saw was the aftermath of an epic beatdown. Jesus over death. Because if you ask the question, what does it look like to see death defeated? This is exactly what it looks like, or what it looked like. The sun is up, a tomb door thrown aside, and grave clothes lying on the ground like yesterday's dirty laundry. Walked away from. Jesus wins in a landslide. And death, and this is where it gets personal, death and all of our worst nightmares are left whimpering in the corner in the fetal position. This is what he's seen. Death is impotent. Death is weak. And I I was thinking second service as we were singing earlier uh, about in 1 Corinthians 15, that passage I was referencing, death is taunted. And we'll sing this later in the service. Death is taunted and should be taunted by Christians. Death, where is your sting? You used to be so powerful. Where are you? Where's the darkness? Where's the eternal nature of death? Why are the grave clothes sitting in a pile like they don't matter anymore? You know, All those questions should fill the mind of the Christian, fill the mind of the reader as you read this. This is what it looks like for death to be destroyed and beat to a bloody pulp. Jesus being the winner, death being the Whimpering in the corner in the fetal position and all of our sins with it, and all of our worst nightmares, and all of the expectations that we will die forever to, left in the corner in the fetal position, whimpering. And so here's the response, then, as that's happening, as that's being written about and twisted in the light and seen and suggested and intentionally written in here. That the big thing here is response. So Peter marvels, but but look what happens. The women go back, and it's really simple. Some believe, some don't, and others seek out the truth for themselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, as the Bible says, and as Jesus himself said it would, and that has liberating bearing on our lives. We can choose to disbelieve, of course, and we all did before we didn't, or some of you still are in that space, but... All of us have that in common, Christian or not, that at one point we disbelieved or were just ignorant, didn't know about this, but we chose to resist this, this idea. But one thing we can't say is that the Bible is saying that it's an idle tale. And, you know, you might think, duh, but that's something that it, that fills sometimes the, the walls of church buildings, that kind of false gospel, that idea of, us uh, on the internet this week just reading stories of this about how, you know, Easter... Sermons, so to speak, are just full of moral lessons in the resurrection. Like, you know, it didn't really happen. The point God wants you to believe is just that you can, you too, can rise up from your figurative ashes and, um, you know, and conquer your dreams or something like that. So I'm forgetting actually what it said, but, but that's not the this. The point here is, idle tale. The phrase idle tale is linked with disbelief. So at least we can't say we can choose to believe that. Of course, one thing we can't say is the Bible is saying that the resurrection was just a fable or just a story or an idle tale. What this is saying, what God's word is saying to us is it actually happened and it's not a made-up story. It's not an idle tale. It actually happened in history and it actually happened to glorify God and to benefit and give us joy and hope for eternal life. So the point is belief. Uh, If it's history then it's God's gift to sinners. If it's just a metaphor, then it's about us. If it's a metaphor, a moral lesson, it's on you to sort of live that out how you want. But if something God did completely by himself without our help, then it's something just to like stare at in amazement and receive, right? Just notice the passivity of the women here, the passivity of Peter. They go and they see the door open already, right? I mean, they're they're not helping the the whole thing they're receiving the words of the angels on the one side and then Peter the words of the women on the other side they're receiving the word the announcement of it and then they just go and stare at it and choose to believe or choose to marvel in Peter's case at it that's really important to understand no one welcomed Jesus from the tomb with open arms no one worked for this no one expected it no one earned it but instead God rose Jesus from the dead without our help. No moral precondition, no qualification, no lesson. You know, I even think this is why, um, to get really specific, why the gospel writers, and why God himself allows history to unfold this way, but the gospel writers are careful to, to acknowledge that when the women went, they saw the tomb already open. And when Peter went, they saw the tomb already open. So in other words, God did this completely without human intervention, right? Or think about it this way. If Peter went, or, or the women like together, like said, all right, guys, we know this is going to happen and went before the crack of dawn and stood there looking at their watches and, and with their arms open and the, the, the door rolls away and they're there and they say, Jesus, here we are with open arms. Or what if they helped move the stone themselves, It's very important that didn't happen because it's very important to know we don't save ourselves by our works. It's very important for us to know we're saved by God's amazing love and grace, by him working apart and aside from us. And this is why they don't see Jesus right away. He's powerful enough to, just like he rolled the stone himself, that means he rolls the stone of our sin away himself. He rolls death away himself. It's not a lesson to follow. It's a reality to believe in. See all these things come together? We're passive when it comes to salvation. This is our story too. We're like the women. We're, we're like Peter. We see it already done without having laid a finger on it. We just watch, stand in amazement, and believe that it happened and it has been in our lives. The women thought they were bringing a present to Jesus, right? When they brought the spices. The women thought they were bringing a present to Jesus, but... It was really Jesus who had a present for them. This is our story as well. God, God is, you know, when, when we seek to bring something to God, whether it's our kind of, you know, moral aptitude or whatever, God says, no, he's, he's already, we come to the cross, he's already done it. He says it's finished. So in the same way, the women drop the spices. We have to drop our moral effort. Drop your good works, not just your bad works. Drop your good works on the ground and just stare in the empty tomb and say, God did this alone, and believe. Because our, our spices and flowers will, present, will prevent us from believing just as much as our propensity to do really, really bad things. So I think that's the invitation here, you guys. For, again, for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, drop your spices. In other words, he's not a dead moralist, nor does he require gifts or good deeds from you. Stare into the empty tomb, hear the angels cry out, he's not here, he has risen. Marvel, believe, breathe in the free air of the new creation, and then go tell someone about it. That's the response. That's what they're doing. And so, in light of that, Romans 10, 9 to 11 here, uh, actually, we'll close with this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, the gospel according to Luke 24. Uh, thank you for showing us the gospel as well as saying to us, speaking to us the gospel uh, in all its glories. Father, we we just ask uh, for your help today uh, for belief and for helping that belief and for, as I think in Mark 9, the the one individual says, I believe but help my unbelief. Pray for that. Help our unbelief uh, wherever that might manifest itself. But God, we thank you that you're alive, you're risen. Uh, you're alive now, ascended, to be seated next to God the Father, but coming back bodily someday. But in the meantime, alive by the Holy Spirit uh, in and around the community of the church where the gospel is preached and communion's taken. That's where you live, and that's where we see you, get glimpses of you, and hear directly from you as your word is taught. So um, thank you for the freedom that there is in knowing that you rolled the stone away yourself. We didn't help. So free us from the idea that we help our own salvation, that you do 50% and we do our own. The reality is the resurrection story itself does not teach that. Uh, If Peter helped roll the stone away, we could affirm that. If the woman helped roll the stone away, we could affirm that. But you did it yourself to say that you save us on your own strength, not by ours. So thank you for that. Help us to believe that, to be humbled in that, wreck our pride, and please move in us so we might actually believe a true gospel and not some fake version that just sees you as still dead, but having a few good things to say. Uh, In that we pray uh, for God's glory in Christ. Amen.